Hello, I'm Dr. Nigma Talib. This is a Healthy Dog Podcast. I am a naturopathic doctor and author of Younger Skin Starts in the Gut. There is no better time than now to take action on your health. It has always been my vision to help people not only get to the root cause of illness, but enable them to reach optimal wellness. I am so excited to interview fascinating guests that range from friends, colleagues, and pioneers in their field. I promise you that your thirst for knowledge in the wellness world will be quenched. Doctora means teacher, and my goal is to bring awareness and provide knowledge to my listeners, which you can take and make it your own. I am Dr. Nigma Talib. You're listening to The Healthy Doc. My next guest is Dr. Marvin Singh. He is an integrative gastroenterologist in San Diego, California, and he is one of the editors of the textbook of integrative gastroenterology. He has dedicated his life to guiding his patients towards optimal wellness every step of the way. Please welcome Dr. Marvin Singh. Hi, everyone. Okay, today, if you have the guts to listen to what we're about to say, I have an integrative gastroenterologist. His name is Marvin Singh, and he's joining us today. Uh, He uh, practices in San Diego, and we're here to talk about all things gut-related. And I'm so excited to introduce him to join us today to chat about everything about the gut, the gut and immune system, what we can do to optimize our gut function. And here he is. Hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. How are you? I'm doing good. Nice nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. Uh, so how are things going for you? They're going good. Um, you know, uh, you know, dealing with the coronavirus in our own way over here in San Diego. Um, but uh, still able to uh, help people out doing a lot of telemedicine these days. But, I know um, it. Hanging in there, keeping safe, staying at home. Staying at home. You know, I find it the telemedicine, like I'm doing physical examinations on like during telemedicine, asking people to palpate their lymph nodes, also feel their bellies and feel if it's like in the upper epigastric area, lower, you know, where are you feeling the pain? And it, it seems to be working really well. Like I've, yeah. I've been doing telemedicine for a while, uh, but to be honest it's it's not really changed because i have patients from all over the world anyway so it's right you know it's just i'm doing more of them i don't get to see my regular patients which yeah do i miss don't you miss seeing patients yeah. in person i know I, I think there's a there's a huge social interconnection um piece missing um that right. just goes not just for doctors taking care of patients but just for people in general so um it's nice to do you know i guess at least it's nice we get to see people you know uh on the video <laughs> right rather i mean some people are just uh quarantined at home and they're not seeing anybody so yeah. that's why i always encourage them you know just because you're quarantined at home doesn't mean that you can't see anybody you can still do zoom or you know facetime or whatever with with uh, your friends and family and keep in touch that way and i think a lot of people are uh, coming around to doing that more uh these days 100 percent so we are here to talk about gut health and i'm so excited i wrote my book in 2015 and the younger skin starts in the gut and it was before the gut craze you know and now you know 
I, I've been talking about the gut for my entire career. And for you, you've been talking about it your whole career. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you about gut health and, you know, why it's so important to the immune system. So just, I would love everybody to get your background. I just adopted a puppy, by the way, oh. so my apologies. Um, That's okay. <laughs> um, I'd love to get your uh opinion on you know gut health and the immune function because we know 80 percent of the immune system is in our gut can you tell us a little bit more about that in a scientific way that people can understand what that actually means when most of your immune systems in your gut yeah yeah first i guess we should say what the gut is and how how yes. big is the gut so you know um the gut starts it. the digestive tract uh, starts in the mouth and goes all the way to the end um and i think most people know where it ends um right um but uh if, if uh if we were to open up your body and take out the digestive tract and put it on the ground it's about the length of a doubles tennis court. And I don't think a lot of people understand or appreciate that. It's a lot of, a lot of space, a lot of surface area. And uh, why we always talk about the gut is for one main reason, is because the gut is the home to what we call the microbiome, the gut microbiome. Yeah. And there are a lot of different microbiomes throughout the entire body, um, on the skin and the mouth. But um, the big one that we often talk about is the gut microbiome is about 80%, like you said, of the immune system is located in the gastrointestinal tract. And what's a microbiome then, I guess, is the next question. So the microbiome is a collection of, it's an ecosystem of uh, different microorganisms. So that means bacteria, viruses, fungi, they all live there just like we all live on planet Earth. So this is their planet Earth. Um, and uh, they all have different functions. They all have different jobs. They all do different things. And um, uh, they work to keep us healthy. But sometimes when we may not necessarily be doing our, uh, holding up our end of the bargain, um, they can get a little off balance, just like uh, the citizens in your community can get off balance. And then things can go, uh, you know, awry. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, like an easy way of kind of thinking about the microbiome and and the gut. When we say the gut, I think a lot of times we're really meaning, we're, we're, it's almost synonymous. We're talking about the microbiome, but we're saying right. the gut, you know. So gut health is microbiome health. It's basically the same kind of thing. Right. And the whole digestive process starts in your mouth. And people don't understand how important that mindfulness of chewing is, you know. And right. I always make the joke and, and tell people, put a piece of bread in your mouth and leave it there for as long as you can until it turns sweet because you're actually breaking down the carbohydrates into sugars. So, you know, that's where digestion starts. And I think a lot of the problem starts with chewing, don't you think? Yeah, uh, chewing and oral hygiene also, you know, um, yes. along those same lines. Uh, very interesting, you know, we're seeing uh, in, the, in the literature uh, about the importance of the oral microbiome. And so I often talk about mindful eating and chewing your food very nicely, like you mentioned, but I also talk to people about making sure you take good care of your teeth and your mouth and brushing your teeth and flossing your teeth regularly, maybe even more than you think you uh, might ordinarily need to. Um, there's some very fascinating literature coming out. Even I think like last month, there was a study, um, they were looking at individuals with uh, colon cancer at a younger age. And they found that uh, in these people, they had the a prominence of a particular microorganism, a bacteria in their gut called Fusobacterium nucleatum. 
And uh, what's what's interesting about this? Why am I even talking about it? I'm talking about it because that's an oral microbe. It's not a gut microbe. It's not supposed to be in the gut. It's in the mouth. So we have this mouth organism that's getting down into the gut and living in the gut. So it's almost like an uninvited guest. Right. You know, uh, maybe it's okay if they stay for a day or two, but if they start living there forever, you might have a problem. So they found that this bacteria could be associated with actually creating an environment that uh, wants to make cancer. Um, and so, so this is an important thing to underscore. And there, there, this is just one example. There are other examples and even in different cancers too. I think that like a year or so ago, there was something on pancreatic cancer and the oral microbiome. And so there's a lot of stuff there, autoimmunity, inflammation, all that stuff can start there. And there's a lot of different reasons why um, these bacteria might get down, uh, maybe because of uh, the diet you're eating, could be maybe because there's low stomach acid, um, it could be just, you know, because you're, you're not taking care of your mouth as well as you could be. So a variety of different reasons. And it's interesting, too, they did, they, they looked at a correlation between something called short chain fatty acids for people that don't know what short chain fatty acids are. And I measure them often um, in stool samples. And we look at these short chain fatty acids and the distribution of them. And there is one particular one, the N-butyrates, which actually work as a fuel for the colonic epithelial cells. And they found that the higher levels, sorry, the lower levels of butyrates and higher levels of acetates correlated with colorectal cancer. So again, some really interesting correlations in the microbiome. And could that be from different bacteria mutating from the oral microbiome to the digestive microbiome? You know, it'd be interesting to look at that. Yeah, for sure. Butyrate is a very important topic. Uh, it's good that you brought that up. Butyrate is, like you said, a short-chain fatty acid yes. that um, the bacteria make when they digest the food. So it's an anti-inflammatory. That might be a little bit of an overcall to say it's uh, like a chemotherapy, uh, but I often describe it so people can understand. It's yes. almost like a, a natural form of chemotherapy for your gut. Um, uh, in in that it is actually helpful and healing and anti-inflammatory. And then you say, well, okay, well, I want to have more of that butyrate. What do I do? I mean, obviously, you could obviously take a supplement, but the best natural way is to actually eat a healthy diet with a lot of fiber and plant sources, because that's what the bacteria eat and turn into butyrate. And as a result, you get this beneficial effect. So I sometimes tell people, you know, instead of eating, you know, M&Ms, eat some raspberries because uh, <laughs> it's a completely, totally different snack. You get your sweet out of it, you know, Good. and you get a lot of fiber and you get uh, all the flavonoids from the raspberries. And as a result, you get some butyrate and you get a little chemotherapy out of it, you know, a natural form of chemotherapy. So, you know, you can naturally help yourself in that regards. And there are actually some really cool studies, even in the conventional literature um, that I reviewed for a recent talk I gave, they were looking at cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is like stage four scarring of the liver when your liver doesn't function very well. And they looked at butyrate levels um, and uh, how complicated the cirrhosis was, meaning like, was the person really sick? Um, and did they have like other complications from cirrhosis like liver uh, confusion, uh, buildup of fluid in the belly called ascites and jaundice and things like that. And they actually found that there was an inverse relationship with levels of butyrate 
and how bad your liver disease was. So that means that if the butyrate level is high, that you would have less complications or problems as a result of the liver disease. So that is also a fascinating connection. We've known that liver disease can be connected to the gut microbiome. Um, but th this was a fascinating study for me to see in the conventional literature, even showing about how the microbiome could play a role in actually severity and disease course. 100%. And it's, it, I measure that distribution all the time when I measure my patients. Um, I know you do a lot of uh, stool testing. Uh, but I, 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 as a naturopathic doctor, it's been part of my protocol is treating gut health because all disease starts in the gut and can also be, in my opinion, treated and cured in the gut. You know, uh, for me as a, as a young uh, teenager, I had eczema and I had my mm -hmm. naturopathic doctor, like really bad eczema. And I had my naturopathic doctor treat my gut and my eczema was gone. So, you know, your job as a gastroenterologist is super, super important and combining, I, I love you use a lot of naturopathic therapies and a lot of the way our principles are. You're, you're you know, you're, you're gastroenterologist, but at the same time, you're, you're, you're functioning at the root cause, which to me is, you're my best friend, you know? <laughs> and I, I always wanted to work with gastroenterologists that, you know, could understand the way we as naturopathic doctors are treating the underlying cause and also treating, you know, issues that patients have. You see a lot of patients go to gastroenterologists and they don't get anywhere because the gastroenterologists either put them on antibiotics um, and send them home. And, you know, it's, there's not really an answer at the end of the day, which is why I love what you do. And I love that you use a lot of botanicals. Um, so, so tell us, like, what made you want to go this route and use, um, I'm going to say naturopathic modalities, because I don't know what else to call it, um, using, you know, botanicals, things that we learn as naturopathic doctors. What made you go into that? Like, what prompted you to, to join that, to do that? Yeah, uh, and if you, if you uh, looked at me, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and said that I was going to be who I am today, you, it would be a joke. Like you would never guess that me, uh, who grew up uh, very conservatively, um, trained very conservatively, would end up being, uh, you know, one of the only integrative gastroenterologists in the country. But this is how life uh, took me on this path. I did my, you know, residency training at a at a very good university, University of Michigan, uh, but very conservative um, uh, university. And then I did my uh, GI training at the Scripps Clinic. Um, uh, and, uh, after that I took my first job as a faculty at Johns Hopkins. So, you know, a conservative all the way through and then going to like one of probably the most conservative, you know, very science driven, um, organizations. Um, but they are a little open-minded. They actually have integrative medicine, um, center there. Um, and, but, you know, after that time period, I kind of realized we're taking care of patients. We can help them. We can save their lives. Um, we yes. can make them healthy when they're sick in the hospital. Um, <clears throat> but there, there are a lot of people who just keep coming back over and over again with the same kind of chronic symptoms. And it's almost like we're going nowhere. And you see these people just get passed around from doctor to doctor to doctor. And they've had their scopes. They've had their scans. They've had all the lab tests and everything's normal. But you know, and then they say, oh, you have IBS or it's all in your head or you're just anxious. And maybe they are anxious. Maybe that's part of it. But 
You got to talk through this process. You got to look at what some of the underlying causes are. And I reached a point of frustration, actually, in my early career where I always tell the story. I, I remember sitting in the basement of our house uh, and talking with my wife and said, maybe we should just open a bagel shop. Forget medicine. I don't need to. Do, maybe I shouldn't be a doctor. Maybe it's me that's doing something wrong. Maybe that's why the people aren't getting better. And uh, my wife was uh, uh, and still is a very uh, um, strong advocate for, for me and uh, said, you know, she was always a little more forward thinking than I was and said, why don't you look into um, integrative medicine? I'll get you this book. It's called Integrative Gastroenterology. And I said, this is this is BS. Uh, why, uh, don't bother with it. So she bought it anyways, and she put it on my desk. And then eventually I started flipping through it and I said, some of this stuff is interesting and they're always citing peer reviewed literature, you know, in inflammatory bowel disease and IBS. And, you know, uh, this seems very interesting. Um, let's work through this. Um, so I started reading it a little bit more and, you know, I saw that the editor of the book was, uh, Jerry Mullen. And it's very interesting how, you know, life kind of works its way out sometimes, but because he was the one, friend of mine that I made, uh, particularly at Johns Hopkins at my first job. And so I reached out to him and I said, you know, tell me about integrative medicine and integrative GI. And he said, you know, we talked for a while and uh, he said, you know, it sounds like you would probably really like the integrative medicine fellowship. So look into that. And so it was really kind of blind trust tell you the truth. I still didn't really know what I was going to get into. But I said, okay, let's do it because I really wanted to try to make a change. I wanted to do something better, different. And so I enrolled in Andrew Wiles uh, program at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I went uh, for the first time for the first week, you know, we go in person, and we meet the faculty interact with uh, Andy and everybody and uh, learn about integrative medicine and I was meditating, I was doing yoga and Tai Chi, we were learning about hypnosis, we were learning about food, which was interesting because um, I, I, I thought I'm a GI, I'm supposed to know all about food and nutrition, but at the same time, uh, I guess I didn't, you know, and I was trying things that I would never have tried, like tempeh and, you know, fermented foods and things like that. Um, and I came back totally rejuvenated, like I felt like somebody blew a breath of fresh air into my whole being. And I said, this is what I was looking for. This is the piece that was missing. And so then I, you know, and that's the nature of who I am is when I start feeling something along those lines, I, I go all in. So I started immersing myself in the literature and learning beyond what was being taught in the fellowship, started reading. I read like, I think the first two years, like a hundred books on all kinds of stuff quantum theory, microbiome, nutrition, everything. Um, and uh, so I started learning on my own and then um, uh, I started writing. So I wrote a book chapter and then I was invited to be an editor of the Integrative Gastroenterology textbook, the second edition. And I would say it's funny how the book that brought me into the field, now I became one of the writers of the book. So, wow. um, and here I am today. And so I just kind of continue to grow and, and learn. Everybody uh, should continue to grow and learn on an ongoing basis and listen to your listen to your feelings, I guess, is what I always tell everybody. Because um, if you feel like something's not right, then probably something's not right. And pursue that. Don't just give up on it because you could end up in a much better place um, uh, if you just try.
If you have a gut feeling, everyone. You have a gut feeling. Gut. <laughs> My and microbes are telling me. <laughs> your microbes never lie. <laughs> and you want, and you know the the most the, the the most fascinating part about all this is I started using these recommendations on myself. Um, uh, I uh, in the beginning, That's and the still part. even now, if there's something new, I use myself as a guinea pig. So even if I don't need something, like a patient told me about the anti-inflammatory benefits of emu oil. I'm like, I, right. I don't know, what is emu oil? I'm not a... <laughs> so I got a bottle and I tried it myself before I tell anybody that, you know, right. I see the literature, I review it, I read it, but I want to try it myself before I tell somebody else to try it. Because, you know, if you want somebody to do something, you have to know what, it, what, what it's like, you know? So, um, and I think that was part of the uh, fellowship too. You know, you experience these things that I might not have ever been able to experience before. And I saw the benefit in it. And then you learn about the science behind it. And then you become a believer in it. And so um, I did all these things to myself. And in the first three, four months, I lost like 30 pounds. I mean, I was a doctor, thought I was eating healthy, thought I was doing all the right things. Um, but apparently it wasn't. And that's the case with a lot of people, too. You know, they think, oh, I do things the right way. I do this, I do that, I do that. But why can't I lose the weight? Why? Do I still have skin problems? Why do I still have digestive problems? Well, there may be more to it than you can see on the surface. And once you start uncovering some of these root cause issues, um, you might be able to then start cracking that code. It's true. The science of eating is super important. And, you know, I it boggles my mind how, you know, on the one hand in medical school, you're taught that you can take a drug in your mouth and it's going to do something. But you can eat a food and it's not going to do anything. You're putting the same <laughs> root into your mouth and that it doesn't make a difference. Um, the science of food is super important. You know, it is, food is a drug. It can be a drug. It can be medicine. It can be nourishing. And, you know, I think that what you did was authentic. And I think you were not living deeply in your authentic being. And that's why I never became a medical doctor because it didn't feel right to me. I had seen a naturopathic doctor it helped me get to the root cause of my issues. And so this is not about bashing the conventional medical model. I think people go into medicine for really good reasons. The problem is that, you know, we get into this pattern. It's the system that is the issue, not the medicine. And so I think it's super important that you followed your gut, no pun intended. <laughs> so tell us about one thing that I'm seeing a lot in patients is uh, SIBO, small intestinal bacteria um, overgrowth. Tell yeah. us, is there, I'm seeing a rise in my practice or rather has it always been there and we just haven't been able to identify this as a major issue it's probably always been there um it just maybe we've been calling it different things uh, over yes. the period of time whether we call it ibs or we just say it's bloating or you have functional gut symptoms but at the end of the day what what is really happening i mean there's an imbalance in that ecosystem that we talked about earlier and when that imbalance occurs then um, the functions of digestion may not be ideal um, and SIBO means small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And um, this is very, uh, a very prevalent thing. I didn't know that becoming an integrative GI was going to make me a SIBO expert, but uh, I'd say probably, 
probably like uh, 70, 80% of my practice is probably SIBO. Um, and so uh, the, the, the beauty, the beauty of integrative and functional medicine is that there are really good treatments that don't have to necessarily involve an antibiotic. Um, you know, uh, there was a study published by actually Dr. Mullen and his colleagues at Johns Hopkins in 2014 that I often refer back to. And they looked at uh, antibiotics versus a couple of herbal regimens. And they found that the outcome was the same, was uh, equivalent. And so uh, in my practice experience, I often go to the herbals first. Um, if if somebody's willing to, you know, I, I, I have two kinds of practices. And so some people not necessarily into integrative or alternative medicine. And so, you know, I don't force anybody to do something that they're not comfortable with. It's the beauty of integrative medicine is you use all the tools that you have at your disposal to help the people in the best way possible so that the outcome is the best for them, because that's what we care about in the end. Um, and so, you know, we but I often use the herbs because um, they it may be a gentler way of um, handling this imbalance um, more naturally. And then we work at, after we do these uh, 30 days of herbal treatment, then we work at rebuilding the microbiome and giving gut supportive um, measures to help that ecosystem thrive and flourish afterwards. So um, uh, I use these antimicrobials for like a month and then I use things like digestive enzymes and serum derived bovine immune globulin and spore based probiotics, glutamine, you know, zinc carnosine, all these things that we use to help optimize gut health. It really depends on the person individually exactly, but these are some of the things that we can use to kind of help bring that ecosystem back. And it's not just about supplements and taking this or that. It's, there's a lot to it because, you know, it's one thing to have a symptom and then to treat the symptom, but that if you never really try to work through exactly why the symptom was there in the first place, it's going to come back. It's right. always going to come back. Um, so, you know, we have to talk about diet. We have to talk about other lifestyle things. Are they exercising? Are they sleeping? What kind of stress are they under? Because all these things do actually make an impact. And there's a lot of literature uh, on how the gut microbiome actually shifts and changes as a result of these lifestyle um, issues. Um, uh, for, an, for example, um, when you're under stress, say you're under anxiety, and you have that fight or flight uh, type of response going on in your body, um, you know, the, uh, all the chemicals, the stress hormones and chemicals are released in the gut. And these chemicals are actually what they call quorum sensing uh, uh, chemicals. Yeah. So they actually bring microbes to the, to the table. And what can happen is that a good guy has the opportunity to become a bad guy. Right. Just like good that. Good cop gone bad. Correct right. Good cop. cop gone bad. Yeah. So, you know, so they say a bacteria can become pathogenic. So right. that's, that's what we mean when we talk in science terms. Um, and when that keeps happening over and over again, you know, you may say, well, look, I, I sleep good. I eat good. I exercise. I do all these things. Um, but why do I still have this problem? Well, I mean, if you are stressed out and you're always anxious and you're not dealing with that and there may be trauma from the past that needs that's unresolved that needs to be addressed. And there are other factors that that um, uh, haven't really been touched on, which are very easy to go glance over in a conventional setting because nobody has really time to talk about those kind of things. Um, if we glance over those things, you're going to miss the boat. You're going to miss the real reason because the the microbiome changes when you have these types of situations. 
And when the microbiome changes, the chemicals that the microbiome, those bacteria in the gut produce, those chemicals change. And then as a result, the motility or how the GI tract squeezes and moves changes. And so then you look at, say, uh, this is why you have SIBO. This is because the gut's not moving well and the bacteria are stagnating there and overgrowing. And now you have excessive fermentation going on. So you see how you can take something that seems very simple on the surface. Okay, well, you have bloating, try this medicine and it should be good. But those people are going to keep coming back because you didn't really address why the problem was there in the first place. Absolutely. And it's super interesting when we look at all the aspects of what could be creating this SIBO, um, small intestine and large intestine, two different environments, two different colonies of bacteria. Um, you know, the bacteria of those two should not mix, you know, um, it's like Compton and, you know, Brooklyn or something like that, you know, <laughs> you can't mix the two groups or whatever. We're right? on gang wars. We don't want to start any wars, gang wars. <laughs> right? So like I look at SIBO as like a gang war and, you know, I love the fact that you address the motility issue being related to stress. And the other thing that was researched was hydration. They looked at athletes and they made them work out, two groups of athletes, and they made them work out excessive. And one of the groups, they deprived them of water, hydration. Mm -hmm. And they found that the permeability of the intestinal, intestinal mucosa increased. So we look at stress on the body, stress of any kind, you know, preventing yourself from being hydrated, eating well, um, stress in general. What will cortisol do to the intestinal mucosa? Be interesting to know. I know that there are studies done that show that intestinal permeability and stress are correlated. Mm -hmm. So again, it's so important that you as a gastroenterologist are bringing all those points up because you're gonna have that patient come back over and over again. And let me tell you, I've yeah. had to learn to put my foot down with the patients and say, listen, it's all of these things. Everybody wants a magic bullet to the SIBO because they're in so much discomfort. They're so bloated. They're feeling so rubbish. They've got mind fog and they just want a pill. They'll, they'll say to me, Dr. Nigma, just give me an antibiotic. And I said, I can give you an antibiotic, but it's gonna come back probably. Chances of it coming back is quite high because you've had an antibiotic before. So it's a really, really tough situation. Yeah, you have to you have to look at the root causes. You have to look at that. And sometimes, even when you do everything as best as you can, yeah. there's still the tough cases. So um, there are still still the ones that are hard to figure out. And we have to dig a little bit deeper. We have to look and see what's going on in the microbiome. Um, are the ratios of certain microbes off? Is there something that we're missing? Um, and what do we need to do about that? And so that's where some of the precision-based testing can come in handy and and uh, we've uh, I've helped some people in that regards to some of the more challenging uh, cases by um, uh, looking a little bit deeper into into that, because you won't really see that on the surface by talking to anybody either. No. And I think it's super important to be patient. If you are a SIBO sufferer, it's going to make you more anxious that it's taking longer. And it does take more more time to 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 get rid of the SIBO. But yeah. we need to get rid of the underlying cause of what's causing the SIBO to get rid of the SIBO. And unfortunately, uh, these are not things that can be fixed in a day. 
the microbiome doesn't change that quickly. It doesn't shift that readily. It takes takes time. It it really depends on what's going on as far as how long. But I mean, sometimes people get better in in weeks. Sometimes people get better in months. Sometimes it takes a year. It all depends on what all the issues are that are that are contributing. And most of the time, in my experience, it's never just one thing. It's usually multiple things. Uh, maybe the diet, maybe the stress, maybe sleep, maybe exercise, maybe a wide variety of things. It could be something that you're taking for something else that could be driving it. So there are a lot of things to kind of figure out and unwind. Um, so being patient, I think, um, and, um, you know, trying to be as present as possible as, uh, is part of the treatment plan, too, so that we can try to, you know, uh, focus on the positive things and uh, help that way. So the treatment usually is, you know, again, it's individualized, you know, and I want to, I want to work with you on this with the treatment and sort of educate people that are listening because everybody's like, okay, well, what's the treatment for this? <laughs> so the treatment really is diet, lifestyle, certain supplements, there may be antibiotic intervention or not, depending on if you've ever had it before. Um, and then things that are going to increase the motility of the gut. And, you know, exercise, you know, certain breathing exercises, um, you know, making sure you're hydrated, make sure you're not eating raw salads and raw vegetables, you know, um, FODMAP diet. Uh, now, I want you, because you're the gastroenterologist, this is what every GI specialist tells my patients. And I, you know, I agree. Um, it's uh, the FODMAP diet. Uh, can you uh -huh. explain for those listening out there what the FODMAP diet is and what sort of success you've seen in your practice using it? So the easiest way to kind of describe it is you can easily Google low FODMAP diet. There's tons of stuff there. There's great apps um, on, on your smartphones um, that can help guide people through. But basically, the long story short is that these FODMAPs, uh, uh, F-O-D-M-A-P, it's a mnemonic. So it's not like actually a thing. It's a mnemonic. Um, that basically represents groups of foods that are highly fermentable by the microbes in the gut. And so these are kinds of sugars that are highly fermentable. Our human cells don't make the gas. Our human cells don't bloat. It's what happens is just, I, it's the one way I just uh, was explaining to somebody the other day was just imagine that uh, when you eat, let's, we'll use cabbage because that's like a classic bloating FODMAP. When you eat cabbage, what happens is that your gut starts making kombucha. <laughs> so, really, so, it does. Yeah, so that's all the bloating, gas, bubbly type of feeling. It's happening right. inside. So um, what we want to do is look at the kinds of foods, which are called FODMAPs, that um, contribute to this problem and eliminate them. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to eliminate them forever. Um, I often take a modified FODMAP approach. So somebody might say, well, look, I, I know that the polyols, which are the sugar alcohols and the fructans are really bad for me uh, from, from my experience. So I'm not going to eat those. But I know that, you know, the galactans, I'm just making it up, um, uh, are okay. I, I eat these all the time. I never have a problem. Okay, well, that's your modified, you know, approach. But we want to really be good at eliminating those ones that are causing problems. And if you're not sure, then eliminate all the five categories of FODMAPs and then um, uh, for like six to eight weeks and then see how you feel. And then when you want to re 
bring some of these back into your life, into your diet, then just go slowly, category by category, um, and uh, see what happens, you know. And the dose makes the poison. That's the big thing that I always tell people, you know. You can say, well, I, somebody actually told me this last week. They're like, um, well, I'm eating berries uh, because berries are low FODMAP, blueberries. Um, but, you know, they're eating like maybe two two pints or whatever of those things. And I'm like, well, you know, the dose makes the poison. So something could be low FODMAP if you have the right amount. But if you double, triple down on it because it's healthy, you're making it a FODMAP when it wouldn't have needed to be a FODMAP because the load of the sugar you're putting in there is too much. And when that's too much, then the bacteria are like, well, I think it'll be easier for me just to start fermenting this stuff so that you can start processing the food. And then as a result, what happens? They off-gas. So they make the hydrogen, they make the methane, and then you feel bloated and you, you maybe you'll have diarrhea, maybe you'll have constipation, maybe you'll have a mix of both. Your motility is altered as a result. Everybody's a little different in that regards. And so, so these are some of the underlying principles of, of FODMAP diet. Have you seen that movie, The Gremlins? Yeah, a lot, the old, you know, yeah, when, old You remember school. when you, they, you feed them after midnight and they go crazy and they start breaking <laughs> yeah. the house? That's yeah, kind like of that. what I describe <laughs> what's happening with the bacteria um, <laughs> when they grow out of control. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the, so one of the ways to kind of help with the symptoms is yeah. to stop giving those gremlins the foods that will make them go crazy. So, so as a result, they'll calm down. Maybe they won't start growing as much. You're not feeding yeah. the colony so that that helps. And then, then when you take the herbal treatment or whatever treatment you take for SIBO, um, you're basically trying to clean the playing field. And then you work at doing things better for gut health to help support the growth and cultivate the growth of a healthy ecosystem so that those guys that were overgrowing and that were fermenters aren't really around or bothering you as much. What's been your experience with using glutamine and, um, you know, repairing uh, leaky gut and tight junctions? Um, I've been doing a bit of experiment with it, with using zonulin uh, measurement and using things like glutamine, deglycerinized licorice. Uh, and I've been seeing, you know, the results to be better. But, you know, people want to be able to eat these kinds of foods. Now, we know cabbage is rich in glutamine, but it's also going to call, cause a fermentation. So what is your take on that? So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, everybody's uh, different, you know, as far as what works best for them. But um, if we want to talk a little bit about leaky gut, I guess uh, first we can explain what is leaky gut. So some people might not even know. So, you know, the, the GI tract that we were talking about is only one cell layer thick. So if you imagine like, you know, little cells side by side, you know, next to each other. And they're connected by these tight junctions. So they're like little like barbells you can think of that connect the two cells together, which are protein complexes. And so when a variety of things uh, can occur, like, you know, exposure to toxins or particular kind of foods like gluten, um, you know, even stress. And you can have um, a disruption in that barrier, those tight junctions. And then stuff that's in the GI tract, you know, uh, will leak through that that junction that was supposed to be keeping it away um, uh, and then get into the bloodstream. And as a result, the immune system can uh, start inciting a, a response to that. And so this is where food sensitivities, autoimmunity comes from, inflammation comes from because, and, and it happens in a variety of different people. So say you had 
you know, I don't know, uh, a couple of concussions and you're a boxer and uh, maybe that settles in in your head uh, and your brain and maybe you start having neurologic symptoms as a result of that. Maybe, you know, you uh, have uh, problems uh, with the with your skin uh, from a variety of different products you might use and now you have eczema. So, so this is how things can kind of be correlated uh, uh, with leaky gut. Um, and so part of the process of trying to reverse the symptoms is, you know, there's one thing of taking care of the symptoms. That's what conventional medicine is, is good at, you know, is uh, sick care. You have a problem. We have a medicine for that. We'll treat that. But, the, but what you want is really what I call well care. You want to be well. You want to look at the things that are driving the situation in the first place and then address that. Um, and so this is where addressing leaky gut comes into place. And so there are a lot of different things that you can use. Um, L-glutamine is one of them. Um, it can be healing for the uh, gut lining. It's an amino acid and um, people use a wide variety of things. I use a lot of different things. It depends on, you know, maybe what they've used before um, and what works best for them. Uh, zinc carnosine is another thing that people often use for um, leaky gut, DGL, you said, deglycerizinated uh, licorice. I love that for heartburn and indigestion. Um, it has a lot of healing properties. Sometimes people even can make a salve and put it on your skin. Um, I haven't personally tried that, but Andy Weil talks about that as well in some of his writings. Um, and, uh, you know, spore-based probiotics have uh, actually pretty good literature. There's uh, one study on top of my mind that um, uh, showed how LPS levels or uh, lipopolysaccharide levels, uh, which are the endotoxins from the bacteria, can decrease, I think it was like by 42% by taking a spore-based probiotic. Um, uh, you know, uh, so that can be helpful. Sometimes we use bovine colostrum and um, uh, uh, serum-derived bovine immune globulin. So we use a variety of different things. Um, I don't necessarily throw everything at everybody uh, at the same time. It depends on maybe how sick they are and, and what's worked. Some of these things can cause uh, side effects. So you have to um, uh, think about that. Uh, if you take too much glutamine, um, you can get constipated. So, you know, if somebody already has constipation, you may not want to like blast them with stuff that can make constipation. You may want to think about something different. So, so some of these kind of nuances get, yeah, have to be considered when you're making a plan for somebody, but those are some of the main things. Absolutely. With what's going on in the world right now, I'd be remiss to not discuss <laughs> of what we're going through right now, this um, COVID-19 crisis. Uh, what, what do you think is gonna happen to the way we eat? Uh, and I'm gonna say America because I now live in America. Um, <laughs> what, what can we do? I mean, because you're looking at, looking at people that are suffering from the COVID-19 disease um, who are suffering in a way, we're seeing diabetics uh, people that um, you know are overweight, obese, not responding very well to the effects of what should just be a mild to moderate virus uh, symptoms. Uh, what do you think we can, you know, our food choices? I mean, in a perfect world, I would almost feel like, you know, I know we're looking for the vaccine and all of that, but I think it's super important to like ban things like McDonald's and, and, and the fast food, you know, the preservatives, because, you know, what is that doing to our digestion, which is what is that doing to our immune system? We have to talk about that because that is a fact. Our gut, our gut is our immune system. So it's, it's an interesting 
area. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think these kinds of things are going to be banned in the future to eat, you know, eat these, like, just like we have to wear masks or just like we have to do all these things. Don't you think it's important to ban eating these really high preservative, sugar rich, terrible foods for our gut? What do you think? I think, well, as far as banning is concerned, there, there are probably a lot more layers uh, involved there. There's politics and money and capitalism and, and all that stuff. And that's, that's America. But uh, I think self banning these things should be definitely something <laughs> that we do. Take responsibility um, uh, yeah. for yourself. We'll have the McDonald's people coming after us to shoot us. But, uh, but hold on, <laughs> isn't this costing us more money? Like, look at what yeah. this is so, costing you know, they, our they say, economy. Pay, pay the farmer now so you don't have to pay the pharmacy later, right? That's a, that's a common yeah. saying. I think Mark Hyman said yeah. that probably for the first time. Um, you know, uh, this is nothing new, actually, from what me and you and other people in our field um, have been talking about for ages. Um, it's not new from what Hippocrates said, all disease begins in the gut. But what is new is that now that this thing has occurred and um, we found the correlations with people with chronic inflammation, chronic disease, with severity of disease or what happens uh, to them in COVID, um, uh, it's brought it to light more. I think people hopefully will get the message about how important prevention and nutrition really is. Um, and uh, hopefully that will help us help everybody much better. And, you know, it's like I tell people, if you got, um, if you got a fancy car and it takes one particular kind of fuel, would you go and put the bottom of the barrel crappy fuel in that car? No, you're not. You're going to take care of that car. You're going to do everything that you can for that car because you don't want it to break down. Well, that car is your body. So if you're putting diesel fuel when it needs premium, it's not going to last very long. And if it does, it's going to function. It'll drive. It'll move. But you'll start accumulating problems over time. And so you just got to think about it like that. I mean, it's, it's really, it's your choice. Nobody can really make you eat or not eat something. But you should really understand that whatever you put in is not just something to get that growling in your stomach to go away to make you feel like you're full. You're, you're, you're giving your body fuel. You're giving your body energy. And if you give it a subpar type of fuel source or energy, then you're going to get that response out of your body. And that reminds me of a, it was a funny saying. One of, uh, an old, old doctor told me, I don't know, 10 years ago. And he said, you know, garbage in, garbage out. It's as simple as that. Garbage in, garbage out. And so I always keep that in my mind. You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. So we want to try to do the best that we can to optimize nutrition. I'm not like a crazy hardcore stickler. I mean, you have to enjoy life because sure. one of the fundamental parts of of being uh, of lifestyle medicine is actually social interconnectedness. So I talk to people about having fun, laughing, going out. You don't want to feel like, oh, well, I got to eat my celery sticks. I can't go to the restaurant with you know my friends today because I don't want to be in that environment. I mean, uh, that's not a way to live either. Right. I think that, you know, optimal health can be fun and it can be enjoyable. And we have to find a way to make it fun and enjoyable. Otherwise, it won't be sustainable. So one of the things that I always talk about is whatever you do, it has to be flexible and sustainable. Because that is actually the only way a human being can function is flexible 
and sustainable. If you're not, if you're hardcore, I mean, you may be able to go on a diet regimen for three months, hardcore, lose weight. How long does those, how long do those things usually last? Right. And what happens to your microbiome and your genetic expression if you put that stress, and that's a stress on your body when you it's go to stress. extremes. So what happens in the long run? We don't even know a lot of these things, but we know the patterns of uh, what happens in other scenarios. So you can presume that it's not going to be something beneficial in your long run. And, you know, so an example I always tell, famous quote is, you know, um, you can have cake on your birthday. I'm good with that. Have cake. Enjoy your birthday. Have fun. Don't eat cake every day. Just don't eat cake yeah. every day, you know. So, yeah. you know, if you if you eat really healthy, you exercise, you do all the good things, you're meditating, you're doing all the good lifestyle medicine, you know, things, you're taking your supplements, you're doing all the right things, and it's your birthday and you want to have something that you know is probably not good for you health-wise, um, it's it. okay. As yeah. long as you don't have an allergy or some reaction or something right, bad right, happens right. when you have it, obviously. Um, go ahead and do it. It's fine because your body is resilient and your microbiome is resilient. And if you do live your life as best as you can mo as most of the time, these little blips, they're not going to make that much of an impact. Just go back to how you were before. Exactly. And I think the 80-20 rule somebody's written is absolutely my motto. You know, 80% of the time be eating healthy towards your gut and then 20% of the time do what you want to do because you don't want to restrict because that's what's going to make you feel worse. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about with you was gluten. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why the reason why is because, you know, a lot of, you know, my patients don't do well on gluten and uh, you know, what what their gastroenterologist will say is, okay, we're going to do the celiacs test. And, you know, we have non-celiac patients that have same similar reactions to patients who have celiac. And it's not so much about the diagnosis. It's about how is the patient feeling when they're eating these foods? What are your yeah. thoughts on gluten, taking it out, putting it back in from time to time? You know, because it's a, it's a tricky one because everybody's reacting to gluten in a very different way. Yeah, and I, and I also uh, think, uh, based on a lot of other people's stories and experiences, um, uh, that gluten here in the United States is different than the gluten in Europe. Um, a lot yes. of people that actually have overt, frank, blatant problems when they have gluten, they go on vacation in Europe and they eat bread, they don't have any problems at all. So that speaks on a different topic, you know, uh, glyphosate and other pesticides and chemicals and how we grow the crop and what soil the crop is grown in. That's a different topic. But, you know, that aside, um, there are studies showing that in all individuals and in all human beings that gluten can cause temporary intestinal permeability or leaky gut. So yeah. that means that if I have bread and I don't have leaky gut, say I don't have leaky gut and I eat bread, my gut might become a little permeable when I eat that, when I eat that. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I just had it once and, I didn't eat it again for a month. Maybe nothing bad happened, you know, right, Maybe that's okay. Right. But when I have bread every day and I'm continually exposed to that over and over again, and maybe there are other things going on, like my microbiome wants to be more inflamed. I don't have as much butyrate going on. I got, you know, a variety of other factors going on. And this is somebody who could potentially get an autoimmune disease and gluten could be behind it as one of the core underlying factors.
And so it may not, like you're exactly right, it may not be celiac disease. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. It's, a, it's an autoimmune reaction to gluten. Um, you know, and I do endoscopies all the time. We take biopsies for celiac disease all the time. We check blood tests for celiac disease all the time. I mean, to me, if I actually find somebody with actual celiac disease, it's like, oh, wow, look, this person has celiac disease. Meaning that it's maybe a handful of times they usually make the diagnosis of celiac disease. I think a majority of the time people have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which means that you have right. a sensitivity to gluten, but you don't have the autoimmune disease related to that. And um, so these people benefit from not eating gluten. Um, uh, and avoiding it. And if you look at what are the, if you don't want to do any testing, you just want to know what are the foods I should eliminate. There's a, there's a few foods that are always at the top of the list as far as higher offenders. And gluten is at the top. Gluten, dairy, eggs, soy, shellfish, and nuts. I throw in corn sometimes too. Corn's another one. Um, uh, so these are the main things. I add wine to that, unfortunately. Wine? Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of fermentation. It's like yeah. sugar. It 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 works. So a lot of my patients with SIBO or Candida um, don't do well with the wine at all. Yeah, yeah. But as far as food sensitivities or reactions and things like that, these are the foods that are higher offenders. So if you wanted to just kind of blindly say, well, what food should I not eat? You know, gluten is usually going to be at the top of that list. Hundred percent. That that is such. A, it's such great. It's so great to hear that from a gastroenterologist. I mean, I can't wait to work with you more. I cannot <laughs> believe Marvin has been almost an hour that we've been talking. Oh yeah! Like wow. Minutes. Time flies. Huh? <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. I can't believe um, it's Friday again. Is it Friday? Today's Friday. It's, it's Friday like again. It's, yes. Yes. It's, it's COVID any, Friday. Any weekend, <laughs> any weekend plans for you? Um, no, I think there's not much going on this weekend. Actually, probably uh, work on my book a little bit. I'm working on a, a yes, book. Yes, tell us uh, about this. Hopefully, it'll be out in the fall time, November-ish. That's what we're shooting for. It's called Own Your Health. And so the whole premise of the book is that um, we want to teach people about how to use precision medicine to figure out some of these root causes and then how to use an integrative approach to help them with the problems. Because there's two different ways of doing precision health too, right? So you can do all this body imaging composition, scans and microbiome yes. uh, genome sequencing. And then you can go to a conventional doctor and they can say, okay, well, you need Lipitor, you need metformin, you need this and this and this, and that's your precision medicine. No, the best modality to deliver this medication for somebody's longevity in their life is to take a lifestyle integrative medicine approach. Now, if somebody has a major problem and they need a medication, that's one thing. It's not like you're withholding right. medication from them. No. But you know, you discover that somebody has a brain aneurysm, you're not gonna tell them to meditate on that. You're gonna right. take the right action. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, course. but it's using, uh, that's really taking your level to the next, your, your health to the next level. And, and teaching people that there are things that we can do that are available to us. The technology is rapidly growing so rapidly growing on a, on, a, on a monthly basis, there's new stuff coming out. But we wanna, and we wanna be able to use these things and create a protocol for our lives that's seated in the principles of integrative and functional medicine so that we can improve our health for the long run. I mean, um, you know, for example, there's, there's, I mean, I keep in touch with all the latest tests. There's an awesome test coming out um, in the end of the year, early next year where they're looking for cell-free nucleic acid uh, from tumor cells. 
uh, in the blood. So um, they can do just a simple blood test and 50 different cancers that um, don't have proper screening protocols by conventional medicine now, many of them. Um, some of them do, but majority of them don't. Um, they can detect if, if you have abnormal DNA uh, that is malignant, and then they can tell you what the source is. So they can say, we find abnormal, just making it up, we find abnormal DNA from lymphoma in your bloodstream. And you could do, and, and, and so you may be able to detect these things before they become a problem so that you can take proper action. Or we find DNA from pancreatic cancer in your um, cell-free nucleic acid from the, D from the genetic material of pancreatic cancer in your blood. And maybe it's even so early that you do a CT scan and you don't even find anything. But the whole point is that now you know that there's something there and you can try to take measures to make See. sure that that pancreatic cancer, which is in its very baby infancy stage, doesn't become stage four because that's often when we diagnose these things. You come in and you say, well, you know, doc, I've been on this diet, uh, you know, and I thought I was losing weight. And, um, but now my eyes are yellow. It's kind of, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag, you know, uh, at that time right. already. So that's just an example. But, you know, we want to use these tests to optimize our health. We want to use these tests to understand what our actual risk is for certain things. You could do a genetic test and find out that you have an APOE gene for Alzheimer's, which means that you have, uh, you know, 25% increased risk of having Alzheimer's disease. But if you find that you're 60 years old and you had this APOE gene test done for the first time and you have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, you might be really freaked out. Like, oh my God, I'm already a little bit older in age. I'm going to get Alzheimer's. I have the gene for it. But if you combine that with brain imaging, looking at hippocampal uh, volume and looking at um, uh, the size of certain parts of your brain, we can actually personalize your risk and tell you that, you know, your brain looks pristine. You're already 60 years old. You have the gene, so that means you have a risk factor. That's not a death sentence. It doesn't mean you're going to get the problem necessarily. So your personalized risk is this. And now let's look at what are some of the underlying factors that can contribute to Alzheimer's. Let's look at your toxin exposures. Look at your diet. Let's look at your inflammation levels. Look at your gut. And now let's work on those things so that hopefully we can actually prevent a bad problem from happening later on. Or if it does happen because it's in your genetic deck of cards, then maybe it'll happen later in life when you're very old or it won't be as bad as it could have been if we didn't. Or we know we can switch off genes from, from diet, lifestyle, and supplements. We know that right. we can modify genetic expression. It's like turning on and off a light switch. We yep. know you have that genomic susceptibility, but we can modify it. This is, you're not doomed with anything. There are very few diseases that are actually directly genetically linked where you're going to get it no matter what. And this is a beauty. Is you're in the driver's seat. And I love that. I love that you brought the testing up. I, we need to do a whole other talk about just the looking at genomic polymorphisms, polymorphisms and risk for disease. We're out of time and um, we have so much more to talk about. So we're going to have to get you on again, I'm afraid. <laughs> no problem. This was fun. It was very, very quick, very easy. It feels like we were just talking for a couple minutes. <laughs> I know, I know. Time flies when you're talking about gut health. Thank you all for joining us today and having the guts to join us today. <laughs> and we will have Dr. Martin on again. I 
Marvin on again for sure. I promise you if, when he gets the time, I know he's super busy, but thank you so much for taking your time today and having all um, both of our followers followers listen to us and i will be saving this guy so you can watch it again thank you so much happy have friday a, have a good weekend you too bye bye, bye.